Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for being here. In this episode, we ask the question, what makes politicians lie and why do voters support them when they do? Democrats are divided over the issue of immigration. What has to happen to bridge this intra-party divide? At the same time, the end of Title 42 is causing border headaches for President Joe Biden. Will there be a viable solution to raising the nation's debt ceiling, or will many of the nation's vital organs grind to a halt? And finally, there's the killing of Jordan Neely by Daniel Perry in New York City. A twisted tale indeed. Let's start, shall we? I'm resisting the urge to try and find a new way to analyze the car crash interview with Donald Trump on CNN the other week. It's been scrutinized, dissected, fried, dyed, and pressed to the side. So has the $5 million judgment E. Jean Carroll won against him. We know both events likely won't stop his minions from supporting him, and more importantly, funding him. I've said more than once that money and self-aggrandizement are what drive this man. If telling out-and-out lies and doubling down on them were currency, Trump would actually be a billionaire. For me, the central question is the nature and rationale of the hard support for the former president. Maybe the two are linked. In Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough, she talks about the fact that Trump's father instilled in him the idea of never, ever admitting defeat, no matter what. This was, according to his cousin, even at the cost of the truth. This would explain a lot about the town hall on CNN, as well as Trump's speeches on the stump. Of course, none of this explains why the man lies with impunity about so many things. I'm not going into all those things, but I simply ask why a man like Donald Trump has a 30-point lead in the polling on GOP presidential candidates, 30% over his next closest rival. Can his supporters not see his lies? Do they not care? Probably not. If the polls are right, they obviously don't care. A second Trump presidency would be a disaster for America. Now, there are people who think a second Biden presidency would be equally as bad. Biden has the additional disadvantage of being unpopular, according to those same polls. That means Trump has hard support hard and fast support, while Biden's is much softer. Never mind that Biden's record through the pandemic and his support for Ukraine should earn him plaudits at least from mainstream Democrats. Progressive Democrats aren't as deep in his corner as right-wing Republicans are in Trump's. But it's about time to take a step back and try and figure out what happens if his backers actually get what they wish for. What kind of presidency would Trump to be? And what kind of country would America be? I have to say, it would become a place where lying could become the new normal, where criminal charges would become complete exonerations, an Alice in Wonderland situation where the specter of right-wing insurrection becomes frighteningly real. Those are the stakes, folks. And already we see another lawmaker, a current one, charged with producing a tissue of lies to help get himself elected. Of course, we're talking about Congressman George Santos of Long Island. 
At least he has, unlike Donald Trump, admitted that some of the things he's told the public are lies. No matter. He faces 13 felony counts, most of which are connected to financial fraud. That means the plethora of lies he told as yet have no consequence. Here are just a few, according to the New York Times. Not me, the New York Times. Quote, Mr. Santos has misled, exaggerated to, or lied to voters about much of his life, including his education, his career, his check fraud case in Brazil, his animal charity, being a landlord, the 2020 election results, and his ties to the Holocaust and Judaism, the September 11th attacks, and the Pulse nightclub shooting. End quote. And he hasn't been indicted on any of that. That's not really the core of his lies from a criminal perspective. Now, you may ask yourself, how can the Republican Party stomach a serial liar in their midst? To be fair, some GOP lawmakers have condemned Santos and called for his resignation. The bigwigs, however, have remained pretty quiet. That's because they have such a razor-thin margin in the House that if a special election were held after Santos's ouster, they're afraid they'd lose. So they're willing to tolerate an accomplished liar in their midst. That's modern politics for you. I want to make clear that even though Trump and Santos are both Republicans, the GOP has no particular lock on lying. Politicians lie, in some cases, regardless of party. Not all politicians, you understand. Again, not all politicians. Just those who think they can benefit politically by lying. These two, Trump and Santos, will hopefully serve as poster children for lies big and not so big. And hopefully, voters will see them for what they are. Up next, President Biden faces a crisis at the southern border while Democrats squabble over immigration at precisely the same time. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. President Biden and Democrats in general have a problem about immigration. The problem is this. How do they appear tough on border security while appearing to be compassionate toward those trying to cross the border at the same time? Biden appears to have an Achilles heel on the issue with a solid majority disapproving of his handling of it. That would be like 60%. A big part of the problem is the end of Title 42, which allowed the government to swiftly deport undocumented immigrants without even having to allow them to file an asylum claim. With the expiration of the rule, Democrats have been split between those who want to see it extended and those who want to concentrate on making the actual immigration system work. Republicans, of course, have no such problems. Their agenda is to keep as many people from crossing the southern border as is possible. And you might want to notice that they never say anything about the northern border. And, and we'll get to this in a minute, other ways that people come into the United States illegally. 
nor is this an exclusively American problem. Throughout Europe, governments are trying to get a handle on increasing numbers of people seeking refuge, asylum, or economic opportunity in their countries. America is also not unique in having a nativist segment of the population that some politicians will cater to. The term weak on border security is one that the GOP is all too ready to use to slam Democrats, regardless of their actual position. Oh yeah, and there's also open borders used to paint Democrats with an extremely broad brush. And I have to say, this whole notion of open borders is something that is designed to frighten people in different parts of this of the United States. And certainly it has succeeded in frightening people in different parts of the United States. What's odd about it to me is that the people who seem to be so afraid are largely people who don't have a particular threat from people crossing the border. And that's not true of Texas and some of the southern border states. But you have people in the north who are worried to death about immigration without really having a problem about immigration. In other words, there are not hordes of people coming into their particular space. It's true that the U.S.-Mexico border is long and very, very difficult to police. A border wall was not and never will be a solution. Most Americans, by the way, don't even realize that about half the people who migrate to this country do so through airports and not by land crossings. So what is the long-term, long-term that is, solution to the immigration problem, if you want to call it that? Keep in mind that as of now, the predicted chaotic scenes of migrants trying to cross the border in huge numbers after the end of Title 42 has not happened yet. It might, but it certainly has not happened. On the other side of the coin, Democrats have not yet coalesced around an immigration system that keeps the country secure while actually treating migrants like actual, genuine human beings. Is that really, really all that hard? And I'm starting to look at the immigration problem from a very different perspective. I think I may have mentioned it in a previous episode. It could well be that people are migrating from south to north, which with the exception of a couple of situations in Europe, seems to be the general trend. They may be doing this for climate reasons. That's right, climate reasons. They've had floods, they've had oppressive heat, they've had droughts, they've had all sorts of economic and climate calamities that have hit them. And keep in mind that economic calamity soon follows climate calamity. And now these folks are thinking, wait a minute, maybe we have to go to a place that has a more stable climate environment. And certainly when they're looking at it, they're not looking south. They're certainly not looking east or west. They're not going to China. They're not going to Russia. They are going north. Of course, they could go to Russia. Russia has a relatively temperate climate, certainly more temperate than places in South Asia or other areas. But the fact of the matter is that people are migrating south to north. And it may well be 
that all of these different solutions, from an immigration bill in the UK to different kinds of things, the end of Title 42 or the extension of Title 42 in the US, all of these things may not solve the problem, simply will not solve the problem. Now, what does solve the problem? Above my pay grade. But I do have to say that there are some small components that ought to be at play to try and make the system work better. One, making sure that people who do come are put in themselves put in a safe, secure environment and having their claims, their asylum claims, that whatever claims they have, have those adjudicated speedily because in many cases they don't. And then there has to be some form, some form of accommodation for people. It's not good enough to say, as Eric Adams, who you know is a friend, the mayor of New York City, but you know shipping them from New York City to Rockland County, also in New York, is not the solution. The people in Rockland County are going crazy over it. There has to be a uniform, smart system of dealing with immigration. And quite frankly, nobody seems to have found it just yet. Is it really that hard? I don't know. Again, above my pay grade, but I do know it has to be done. Up next in this episode, will the White House and Congress figure out a way to solve the debt ceiling problem? And what are the real stakes if they don't? And the killing of a homeless man on a New York City subway ignites a fierce debate about mental health challenges. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. Will America go broke next month? Last week, the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, warned that if the Biden administration and Congress don't reach agreement on raising the nation's debt ceiling, America could run out of cash next month. That should frighten each and every American. Here's a quick look at each side's position. The Republicans in the House want deep spending cuts before agreeing to raise the debt ceiling. And despite ongoing talks, they don't appear ready to compromise. On the other side, the Biden administration is holding firm on keeping the debt limit separate from budget negotiations. He knows from past bitter experience that tying spending to cuts to to raising the ceiling, that is, would have the effect of gutting some of his most important agenda items. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wants him to scuttle, for example, his clean energy agenda. Why anybody in an era of serious climate change would say, well, one of the first things you have to do is get rid of your clean energy agenda. That smacks of insanity, wackiness. I don't know. Doesn't make sense to me, put it that way. And if that were to happen, the results would be beyond catastrophic. A couple of things about the debt ceiling. It currently stands at $31.4 trillion. And by the way, they reached that limit back in January. What exactly is the debt ceiling? 
it's also, by the way, called the debt limit, is a cap on the total amount of money that the govern, government, that is, the federal government, is authorized to borrow via U.S. Treasury securities, such as bills and savings bonds, to fulfill its financial obligations. Because the United States runs budget deficits, it must borrow huge sums of money to pay its bills. The CBO seems to think that Biden will eventually have to agree to some spending cuts, meaning he'll have to back off his current no-negotiation position. The media is covering this standoff almost like a tempest in a teapot. Remember, there were standoffs on the debt ceiling in 2011 and 2013. There's also the fact that while Republicans want cuts, and this is important, folks, they want cuts, but they have not been specific about the whys and wherefores of those same cuts. They haven't said, well, we want to take so much away from health and human services or so much away from environmental. They haven't said any of that. All they say is, we want cuts. There are talks scheduled before President Biden heads to Japan on Wednesday. Then there's the thorny question of whether McCarthy even has the horses to get a deal over the finish line. You know, not everybody in, not all the House Republicans are huge fans of his. Think about that for a minute. All this is playing out against the backdrop of next year's presidential elections. Let's hope an agreement can be reached. Here's the real catch. A default on America's obligations could mean delays in the distribution of Social Security checks, among other things. God help whoever would be blamed for that. And finally, the chokehold death of 30-year-old Jordan Neely by Daniel Perry on a New York City subway has ignited a firestorm that reverberates far beyond New York where the incident occurred on May 1st. Perry stands charged with second-degree manslaughter after initially being arrested and released without charge. There are a set of facts that come from this incident. First, it was recorded by a freelance journalist who happened to be riding in the same subway car. Second, Jordan Neely was clearly disturbed and acting confrontational and hostile toward train passengers. He didn't, however, touch any passenger. As other passengers left the subway car, Perry pinned Neely to the floor and held him in a chokehold for what the man who recorded the confrontation said was 15 minutes. Perry has been assisted by a GoFundMe-type page that's raised money in the past for, among others, the January 6th insurrectionists and Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So far, they've raised $430,000. Yet the real tragedy here is that Jordan Neely was known to the city for years before he died. He was on a list of 50 people. This is 50 out of 8 million people who were homeless and had known mental problems. No matter what he did on that train, he certainly did not deserve to die. There are difficulties, and we should acknowledge this, there are difficulties that agencies face in trying to help those who cannot or will not accept that health. New York at least tries. However, the nation as a whole needs to do better to treat and assist people, many of whom are homeless as Neely was, and offer them compassionate, humane alternatives to life on the streets. As for Daniel Perry, the justice system will decide his fate. He faces five to 15 years if convicted. Now his family, Jordan Neely's family, wanted him charged with second degree murder. 
Let's see how this all plays out. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.